Tony. Welcome back. Happy New Year to Julian Zelizer, a personal friend of mine, professional colleague, political historian at Princeton University and a New America Foundation fellow. His book is being released today, his newest book. He's author of many before. It's entitled The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. It is available on Amazon.com. Get your copy now. Julian, Happy New Year. Good afternoon and welcome. Welcome back. Good to have you. Thanks for having me. I hope you had good holidays. You I did. Know. I did. Uh, I, I want you to uh, talk to us uh, about this uh, book. You, you give in this book a big picture account of the Great Society and what led up to it, the forces that shaped it. First of all, why did you decide to write about this? And what can Americans come away with that is relevant to the time we live in now, uh, you know, uh, correlating to the time then and, and the, uh, the events that led up to the Great Society? One reason was there was so much legislation that passed in about a year and a half uh, from Medicare and Medicaid to voting rights to environmental legislation. It seemed like a perfect place to look uh, at how Washington can work, especially when we live in an era when it seems so hard just to pass one or two bills. I kind of wanted to understand what happened and what was different. And the second was Lyndon Johnson, who has now become this model of uh, a a president who could do almost anything, a wizard, a magician, uh, a guy who knew how to make a broken system work. And I wanted to see if that was true. And I want to understand if, if our assumptions about him and about what the president can do in Washington were correct or if there was a bigger story there. I want to talk uh, for some people that weren't paying attention um, to history, <laughs> the younger section of our audience perhaps even, that don't fully understand what the great society is. And, and, and then let's talk about the forces that shaped it, that led up to it. Sure. The, you know, Lyndon Johnson takes over the presidency in 1963 when Kennedy's dead uh, after he's been assassinated in Dallas. And between 1964 and about middle of 1966, it's just a huge number of domestic programs that are created. We create Medicare and Medicaid, civil rights and voting rights, federal ed- education assistance and higher education assistance, environmental regulations, immigration reform, and even funding for the arts and the creation of public radio. All of this happens in a, in a very short time. It's not just a lot of legislation. It's big programs. And, of course, the war on poverty with programs like Head Start and uh, food stamps also emerges in this period. Let's talk about what led up to this, and then I want to talk about the Great Society and and today, you know, more so. Uh, the first thing is the civil rights movement, and I think uh, you can't tell the story of this period without understanding the immense impact that grassroots activists were having in 63 and 64. Congress wasn't doing anything at the time of Kennedy's assassination. It was blocking bills. Southern Democrats teamed up with Republicans to block anything that looked liberal. And the civil rights movement forced Congress to act. They created national pressure. Their protests were on TV. The world saw what was going on in places like Alabama, and that broke the logjam. And we have the Civil Rights Act of 1964. And then the election of 1964 creates huge liberal Democratic majorities in both houses of Congress, uh, where members of Congress were going to pass bills with or without Lyndon Johnson, and they didn't care what the Southerners said anymore. So those were the two big pushes that allowed a Lyndon Johnson to succeed. 
Let's take a break, and when we come back, we'll continue to talk about this and continue to talk not only about Lyndon Johnson, uh, but the comparisons between our President Barack Obama and former President Lyndon Johnson. We're talking with Julian Zelizer, political historian at Princeton University and a New America Foundation fellow. His new book's being released today. Isn't that awesome? The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. You like reading about presidents. You like reading about politics. You like reading about history. You will love reading this book. Get it now at Amazon.com. And during the break, check out his website, Julian Zelizer, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R.com. Follow him on Twitter at Julian Zelizer. And we're back. Julian Zelizer is our guest, political historian at Princeton University, a New America Foundation fellow. And today, his new book, entitled The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society, is out. It's been released today, and you can get it at Amazon.com, and I certainly hope that you will. Julian, why do you think that looking back historically now, hindsight, of course, always 2020, Lyndon Johnson is the man looked at today looking back that people think he is? Like you said, a guy, a guy that could do anything, you know, a magical president, if you will, and he certainly wasn't thought of such uh, at that level, that caliber at that time. Not at all. For many generations uh, after he was president, people detested him. He was known as the president who got us into Vietnam. Uh, and there's been a revival of Lyndon Johnson in the past, you know, 10 years or so. I think it's because we live in an era where Washington can't seem to get anything done, where presidents have so much problems with Congress uh, and where the whole city just seems to be shut down and mired in gridlock. And so I think we look for heroes and we look for people uh, who seem to have been able to do things. And I think the Vietnam part of the story has been downplayed a bit. And now we're looking at the domestic side, which seems inconceivable today uh, that so many bills would pass. So I think it's just the nature of uh, so many presidents having trouble with Congress in the last few years. Back then, and even some people now also are suspicious when there's various, as you know, conspiracy theories that he had something to do with John F. Kennedy's death. They point to Jacqueline uh, Onassis uh, Kennedy at the time saying, you know, they killed him. Uh, They point to the fact that, uh, you know, she and her children stayed in the White House. Some say it was nice of him and she stayed there a couple of weeks and some say a couple of weeks. Here's a young widow with her two kids. Uh, Can you speak to that? I think all you need to do is listen to the uh, tapes, the White House tapes of his conversations after Kennedy's death to see that those stories aren't true. Uh, You know, he was devastated. He was concerned. He was determined to keep power going and keep the government going after his death. There's no evidence, zero evidence, that he had anything to do with this. I think that's quite clear. So I understand those stories keep circulating, uh, but that's that's not history. Those those are just you know theories. Well, I want to talk about Lyndon Johnson versus Barack Obama. Can we compare? Of course we can, right? <laughs> That's what we do. Let's talk about some of those comparisons. So the comparisons made all the time, and, and the basic argument is, uh, you know, why can't Obama be more like Lyndon Johnson? And that if he was, if he schmoozed more, if he played hardball with legislators, if he was willing to wheel and deal, 
then that would be the answer, and he'd be getting a lot of bills through. And I think it's a mistake to say that, uh, because, again, the two big things that happened when Lyndon Johnson were, was president was, one, this civil rights movement, which was creating all this pressure on Congress, and then this election, which for a year and a half creates majorities that any president would love to work with. Uh, there was almost no way to lose on a lot of these bills. Obama doesn't have that. He has a much more dysfunctional Congress. He has a Congress where the opponents are very well entrenched in power, and he doesn't have any social movement pressure pushing uh, legislators in both parties uh, to pass domestic legislation. So the little window he did have, he, he did pretty well early in his presidency, uh, but since then he hasn't had Lyndon Johnson's Congress. And so I think the comparison misses that point and gives false expectations about what he can do. Uh, most definitely. In in your research for this book, I mean, you teach this stuff, Julian. You love this stuff. You eat it for breakfast. Was there anything that you learned about Lyndon Johnson that you uh, were shocked or surprised by, uh, you know, in, in getting the information and researching the information for this book? Well, one thing, there, there was no scandal or a scandalous revelation, but one thing that came up again and again is his own understanding of how little power he had. And he hated when people constantly said, Lyndon Johnson, you can do anything. And he hated when people said, look, now that you're president, we have years and years where we can, you know, clear the playing field. And uh, he, he knew this was untrue, and I couldn't believe hearing him say this all the time. He was frustrated, and he, that's why he said we have to move so fast. The other thing which is shocking, I guess, in a different way, is how much Vietnam was a political calculation. What came out very clearly in the archives was Lyndon Johnson believed that for a liberal Democrat to succeed, you had to be a hawk, and you had to stop Republican attacks that you were weak on defense by showing you'd use force. And that was a big part of how he got into Vietnam. It was a trade-off that he made, one that cost him a lot, uh, where he said, I'm going to be tough on Vietnam. I'm not going to listen to the left, because that way I'll have protection for my domestic agenda. And to hear him talk about this and make that calculation is oh it was pretty stunning oh most definitely uh i what would you say is the the, the biggest accomplishment of lyndon johnson and then we'll talk more about uh, president obama and, and get back to the comparisons the, the civil rights and voting rights act are, are just huge and and i think today sometimes we don't appreciate it uh now, now you know, i'm sorry to interrupt julian but my rem remembering history, and of course I'm from Massachusetts, so remember they pray to the Kennedys, you know, <laughs> they did back in the day. Um, it, wasn't this a passion, though, of John F. Kennedy that Lyndon Johnson saw through civil rights, or is this more Lyndon Johnson's, to Lyndon Johnson's credit, and Kennedy gets more of the credit than he should? Now, Lyndon Johnson was moving toward where the civil rights movement was by the late 1950s when he was in the Senate. And uh, the thing I learned about him, he was truly a committed liberal. He really believed in what government could do. And by the late 50s and early 60s, he believed deep down uh, that the government had to help accomplish racial justice. I, I, I came away not able to think anything but. And he was willing to take great risks. He knew that when he pushed for the civil rights bill, he was going to lose the South to the Republican Party. He said that. Whereas Kennedy believed in civil rights, but I didn't think he was willing to take the kind of political risks uh, that was necessary. He really hesitates on civil rights until the movement totally forces his hand. So I think Johnson was actually much stronger in his commitment to these ideas. Let's talk about Barack Obama. Uh, versus, if you will, Lyndon Johnson, or, or, or let's uh, do some comparisons. Um, first of all, 
how are they alike as presidents? Well, they both believe in government. They both are true liberals. Uh, Johnson was probably more liberal than Obama. Uh, but I think fundamentally they believe there are all these social problems, there are all these social tensions, and that the federal, state, and local government have a role to play in solving them. And that's a basic fundamental belief that unites the two men. Uh, and I think both men in different ways uh, it gradually inspired uh, some Democrats to believe that their party could do great things. Johnson did it when he passed all these bills. Obama did it earlier when he ran. Uh, I think some of that faith has diminished. Those are the two similarities. Other than that, um, I think there's a lot of differences that are more notable. Uh, talk about how we measure presidents. That really hasn't changed, has it? Or has technology made it change a tad? It's changed a bit. I mean, I think we focus a lot on public approval now, and we're always saying, was a you know, did people like the president when they left, left office? And uh, what were their approval ratings? And so Clinton, for example, is often remembered as this guy who ends it, you know, very popular, so he was a good president. Uh, I think that's a mistake. You know, one of the things Johnson's generation believed, both members of Congress and the White House, you measure a president by the number of bills they get through, the, the number of important programs they leave behind. And Johnson was willing to burn a lot of political capital and, you know, to weaken his own party, which is what happens by the late 1960s, to change the nation, to, to get voting rights and to get Medicare. Uh, I think today we don't give legislation its, its due respect. And I think ultimately that's what presidents leave behind. When we look at the legacy of Lyndon Johnson, it's easier because we have a legacy to look back at. I mean, in all fairness, President Barack Obama is uh, still in the White House, but we don't have to, we didn't have things back in the day like fact checker. Would you say it's more difficult to be a president now uh, because of the type of world we live in, the level of transparency, uh, the amount of things, even high level positions in, that are supposed to be top secret leaked uh, to the press and a smaller world now than it was uh, I mean, you know, back in the day of Lyndon Johnson, you know, only the rich traveled and you had a full set of heavy luggage and you had somebody carry it for you and you got all dolled up. I think in general, it's tough being president. Historically, it's always a, a pretty bad job. And I think most people, when they become president, uh, you know, think, oh, my God, I can't do even a little bit of what I hope to achieve. I do think there are some problems that have intensified, and I think some of the ones you're talking about, the kind of media scrutiny that presidents are now subject to, the transparency through which many people can view and follow the life of the president, that was not something uh, Lyndon Johnson had to deal with. On the other hand, when he was president, the kind of social, social turmoil that was taking place was really, really horrendous. Um, you know, we talk about Ferguson and, and everything that happened recently, but imagine that multiplied in states all across the South as, uh, con as confrontation was taking place over racial equality. Um, so it's always a bad job. It's always a tough job. And I think in different eras, the challenges change. When, again, looking at the population of the United States and the demographics of the United States, certainly it was a white majority rule, no question, still is today to a degree, but we do have a black president. Um, Lyndon Johnson, how was he perceived uh, among, you know, white Americans? And I say that because there are certainly those blue dog Democrats or the Southern Democrats, um, one and the same, many would say, but also Democrats that, I mean, for example, Julian, I, I was saying that hearing a lot of the remarks from Bill Maher with regard to Charlie Hebdo, um, 
I, I don't I feel he sounds like a liberal. It's it, it's almost like in these situations, well, I'm a liberal until it comes to terrorist attacks and Muslims and that kind of thing. And and I and I think back in the day with Lyndon Johnson, there were liberals, there were Democrats that were the same way, except when it came to blacks or civil rights. I think, look, for, for much of his career, a lot of white politicians, including Southerners, liked him. Uh, the guy who mentors him is this white Southerner named Richard Russell in the Senate who was against civil rights. He was a racist. Uh, and one of the things Lyndon Johnson always said is, help me get to the presidency because don't you trust me to deal with these issues more than you would some northern liberal, including issues like civil rights. Um, but gradually, he started to anger a lot of white Americans because he did deal uh, forthright with issues of racial justice. So in 1966, when he pushes for an open housing bill, a bill that would end segregation in the sale or rental of housing, a lot of white Democrats in places like Illinois are furious with the administration, and they start to really uh, start a backlash against the party. So I think the deeper he got into civil rights and tested the boundaries of liberalism, uh, the more angry a lot of members of his own party got. So I think you're exactly right. That was a big one. And when you dealt with it in the South, it was one thing. But when you dealt with racial issues in the North and schools and housing, uh, a lot of traditional Democrats started to get angry and not trust him. For people that aren't familiar with uh, Johnson, a little bit about his background. Where is he from? He's from Texas. Uh, I wanted to. I know that because I lived in Texas, and they have things named after him. And not everybody knows that. And I say that because a lot of people wouldn't think of a Texan, you know, which is its whole, its 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 own state within the South, within itself, very much so. Uh, would would press for such ideas. No, absolutely. His father was a member of the Texas legislature. He was a populist. He grew up sometimes with money, sometimes without money. His father lost a lot of money by the time he was in his 20s. Uh, uh, He went to school in Texas. He taught at a very poor Mexican-American school his final year of college and a few years after where he really learned about the problems of poverty in rural Texas and got a good sense of why the government was needed. Uh, And, you know, he went to Washington relatively early in 1931 and never came back. But kind of rural, poor Texas is the environment in which he grew up, even when his family was was doing uh, relatively well. So So he always saw poverty he always saw racial discrimination firsthand. That's really what produced him. You write about and you talked about here on the show how the victories of Johnson came in a two-year period when Democrats had two-thirds of majorities in both um, you know, the, the Senate uh, and, and the House. They had 68 seats in the Senate, 295 in the House back then when Johnson was president. Is that in your professional opinion and, and historically – what a president needs to have such victory or no, when we look at modern times and people like a Bill Clinton that have been able to work across the aisle, even a Ronald Reagan. Yeah, but Bill Clinton never had legislation like this, uh, and, and he doesn't have a record. I, I do think you need rather sizable majorities uh, to, to be able to work Congress. I, I think in the end that's, that's what accounts for success. You can get one or two bills. You can get some victories, but really watershed periods where a president defines an era, I think they need large congressional majorities to do that. That's how the system was built, uh, and that's what it requires. Can you name one or two watershed moments past presidents have had with that majority? 
Sure. Uh, uh, FDR had uh, that kind of success both in 1935 and 1936 with everything from labor reform with the Wagner Act to the creation uh, of Social Security. Richard Nixon probably could have after 1972, uh, but in the end he did himself in, uh, so we'll never know. Uh, but there's not a lot of other moments like that in modern political history. I mean, that's one of the findings of the book. This is rare. Uh, we're talking about a year and a half, and it doesn't happen very often. Most definitely. Uh, again, going forward, will President Obama, years from now, as we look back now to Lyndon Johnson, be elevated to a higher level and recognized for more today? Because maybe you don't want to call him watershed, but he certainly has had at least one key piece of landmark legislation. If, an, if immigration reform is passed, uh, that would be another. Yeah, I do think that's the case. I think we often look back at presidents in a better light. I think when we look at that early year of Obama, uh, when he had Democrats controlling Congress and he got health care, financial reform, the stimulus, they'll look back and say that was pretty good uh, in a system that is pretty dysfunctional. It might not be FDR. It might not be Lyndon Johnson, which I don't think it is. But I do think people will evaluate that in a different way and have a greater sense uh, of the importance of those accomplishments, realizing the limits of what was possible. Now we complain he doesn't do enough, he's too passive, but I think gradually we'll have a better appreciation for what he accomplished in that important year. Julian, thank you for being with us. Everybody get a copy of this book, The Fierce Urgency of Now, Lyndon Johnson, Congress, and the Battle for the Great Society. It's available at Amazon.com. Go to the website, JulianZelizer.com, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. Read more about this political historian at Princeton and the New America Foundation fellow. And follow him on Twitter at Julian Zelizer. Again, J-U-L-I-A-N-Z-E-L-I-Z-E-R. 